Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks, Dan, and welcome to episode 23. In our last episode, we took a look at our Lord and his life of prayer. We read one of his prayers found in John chapter 11. It was a brief prayer prayed before he called Lazarus from the dead and out of the tomb. Let's read it again. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead men was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Well, you know what happened. Lazarus came forth. So let me rehearse for a brief moment what we shared in the previous broadcast. From this text, we said that Jesus had a habit of prayer. It was a regular, continual part of his life. And as our Lord's disciples, we must regularly pray as well. I gave some biblical suggestions on how to build prayer into your daily life. As we look at this, what must seem an odd text on the subject of prayer, we do find what is foundational to prayer. Now, up to this point, I've given motivations for prayer. And they are namely two, our love for God, and secondly, because God is our resource, prayer is the provision of our needs. But there is a foundation for these motives that propel us to pray. In this podcast, I want to share with you what that foundation is. And so, let me discuss what is the reality that is the foundation for our praying and prayer lives. In John chapter 11, we have the story of the death of Lazarus, a man dead four days whose body was already decomposing. More than four days earlier, news came to Jesus that his friend Lazarus was sick, and he did not go to Bethany. No, he purposely waited for Lazarus to die, knowing that this was God's plan. And now Jesus stands outside of Lazarus' tomb. There he is. Before he initiates the plan of God and resurrects Lazarus from the dead, he lifts up his head and he prays this simple prayer. He prays for those listening that they may know that he has God's ear. And I'm so thankful he did this because his prayer is for us also here today. In reading this prayer, you discover the whole reason for prayer. It's this fact that will make prayer less difficult If you learn and believe it, here's what he said. John chapter 11, verse 41. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. I know you always hear me. Here, my friends, is the secret of prayer. This is the foundation of prayer. And if you're not praying on this foundation, prayer will be almost impossible to you. 
It is God's love for him, Jesus, that prompted him to say, I know you always hear me. You, you're always with me. You're always paying attention to me because you love me. Oh, this is the basis of prayer. Not our love for God. No, no. It's God's love for us. Prayer is not some legalistic duty wherein we pray, put in the time in order to get out of it whatever we desire. No. Prayer is not built on that foundation. Yet for so many of us, that's the basis upon which most of us pray. And so I suggest, let's bulldoze that structure, remove that foundation. So the true foundation of God's love will be the basis of why we bend the knee and utter our soul to God. It's this, God loves us. Jesus' belief prayer was not just a command, but an invitation. I'm asking you now not to see it as a command, but I want you to see it as an invitation to loving fellowship and God. God expects you to answer his invitation of love. When I travel on my preaching engagements, my wife Karen rarely is able to go with me. Her responsibilities as caregiver to her mom who lives with us and our daughter Victoria keeps her here at home. Therefore, she expects me to call her, if possible, and if I can't call, then at least I am to text her. Why, she even wants me to text her in the middle of the night when I land in an airport to catch a connecting flight on an international flight. It's this expectation. It's not a demand of obligation. No, it's an expectation of love. My fulfilling that expectation is not a duty or obligation. I want to communicate with her. Why? Because I love her. God's command to pray is exactly the same. It's a command of love. He wants to hear from you because he loves you. That's the reason you are to pray. Your father so longs to hear from you because he loves you. Augustine said, He that loveth little prayeth little, and he that loveth much prayeth much. Augustine learned what Jesus knew. We do not pray only because we have problems or because we must pray in order to be spiritual. No, no, we pray because we love God who loves us. It has been truthfully stated, no one can have very real and deep communion with God who does not know how to pray so as to get answers to prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that he or she has learned some hardly discovered secret to prayer. It means they know God truly enjoys their fellowship, and he loves to bless them. The person who has this reality living in their soul knows how to pray and enjoys prayer more than the person who doesn't understand this. I hope your heart's being moved right now. Do you, do you sense this? Do, do, does your affections feel? Do you know what I'm talking about? If not, then you don't know it yet, and it's just a fact that has no bearing on your life that God loves you. The person who has this reality living in their souls knows that God loves his people and that he loves answering their prayers. God delights in answering prayer. And specifically, he enjoys answering your prayers. It's one of his great pleasures. He enjoys being good to you more than he enjoys you loving him.
But if you don't believe that, and some of us do struggle with that kind of a statement, then you'll not understand prayer, and I think you'll have difficulty relating to God and enjoying His fellowship. My friend, you must understand that God Himself is the invitation to pray. It's natural for God to answer prayer. Answered prayer is not something extraordinary to Him. He's more given to answer our prayers than we are to pray. Why? Why is that? Because He is so immeasurably good to His children. Why would He be so good to us? We can understand why He always hears Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the perfect sinless Lamb of God who's always obedient. But me? I'm not sinless. I'm not perfect. And I'm not always obedient. Why, therefore, would He listen to me? The reason is God loves you. And he loves you because he's loving. The reason God is good to you is because he is good. That's the great transformation that needs to happen in a lot of our hearts. We just don't believe this. Oh, it's in our confessional statements and in our theology books. But the heart, oh, it's not there. We just don't believe it. Oh, my friend, he's so loving that he wants you to pray and so loving that he enjoys answering your prayers. That's just the way he is. The Apostle Paul tells us this about our God. He said in Romans 5, beginning with verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason for Jesus dying for you is not because you keep his commandments. The reason he died for you is not because you did what he told you to do and kept yourself out of trouble. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, Jesus is saying to you and to anyone else who tends to be extremely performance-oriented, I didn't die because you were good at keeping my commandments. I died for you because I wanted to demonstrate how much I love you. Jesus' death is the demonstration, the proof, the argument, the evidence that God loves you and he didn't die because you kept his commandments. God didn't say, if you do what I tell you to do, then I'll love you. Nor is he saying, I will love you if you go beyond just keeping my commandments and serve your fellow man. If you will do good deeds and serve me in the ministry, then I'll, I'll really love you. No, not at all. Paul says God proves his love to you by sending Jesus to die for you when you were still yet a sinner, an ungodly and unlovable person. The reason for his dying for us and loving us is not based upon us. Listen, it's based upon him, his nature, his heart of love. Now, you already knew that, but what I want to do is to take you into the very heart and nature of God for just a few moments so that what you already know becomes real. 
I have to confess to you that I truly struggle with myself. For me, there's always this struggle that I'm not, quote, selfless enough, which is nothing more than self. So I often struggle with how can I ever just love the Lord for his sake and not for what he's done for me. Now, it's not wrong to love God for what he does for you. John deals with that. We love because he first loved us. It's certainly biblical to love and appreciate God for his love for you. But there's a higher degree of love. It's a love where you are lost in that person's goodness. You're enthralled with the worth and the value of that person. It's much like the love of a husband for his wife or a wife for her husband. Or like a mother loving her children. It's purely for the sake of that child or spouse. I want that kind of love for God. I I don't want to only love Him because He does things for me or because He saved me from my sins. I want to love Him for His own sake. Now, this is hard to explain unless you see and taste it. You just can't understand it intellectually. You have to taste it. You need to know that God loves you because, well, He's just that way. Before God made anything, There was God. There was just God, and that was enough. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, and the love and dynamic between those three persons in this one God was and is infinitely good and perfect. God didn't lack anyone to love. His love is self-sufficient, and not only is his love self-sufficient, but neither does he need anything. He's completely satisfied within himself. He didn't need to make the angels or any part of his creation. He didn't need to make man. The very nature of God is to be without need or want because God is satisfied in himself. This is our God. But in his infinite wisdom, He did create. He made angels. He made a universe. He made an earth. He put animals on that earth. And then the crowning achievement of his creation, he made man and woman. He didn't need anything from his creation. He didn't even need the praises of that creation. God doesn't need angels to worship him, nor does he need you or me to worship him. Now, imagine his creation. What is it in comparison to God? Well, it's absolutely, totally nothing, nothing compared to God. Here's where it gets difficult. And I just simply can't illustrate, but I'm going to try to do so. So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to fail. But please try and ask God to help you understand. I'm sure you've received from your children or grandchildren pictures they have made. When you look at those pictures, Not to break any budding artist's heart, but you don't see a great work of art. Nor will you see them in the Louvre in Paris alongside the Mona Lisa. They won't be found in any art gallery soon. But they are the creation of that child's imagination. The reason you value the child's artwork is not for the value of the artwork. It's the value of the person who made it. That's what makes it valuable. What is the value of that child in comparison to the works of art they create. What are they compared to their creation? There is no comparison. You would never take one of those scribblings and value it more than the child, would you? Of course not. It's really no different than 
those artists who have created real masterpieces. There's a wide gap between the importance of the artist and the art. The Mona Lisa, as valuable as it is, is not as valuable as Leonardo da Vinci, the man who created it. What shall one man give in exchange for his soul? A million Mona Lisas won't compare to the soul of Leonardo da Vinci. There's no comparison between the artist and the art. And that's also true about God, the artist who made us, and his art, we, the created, only infinitely more so. Your child could have looked at that piece of paper and the stick figures she drew and said, you know, that's not good enough, and crumpled it up, tossed it away. And no one would have said anything because she's so much greater than the art, and that's the prerogative of an artist, a creator. Do you know when God made the universe, the stars, the angels, and man, if he would have said, I don't like it, and he could have crumpled it up and tossed it away, and it would have been perfectly good for him to have done so. Why? Well, he simply didn't need it. It served no purpose as far as adding anything to him, but he didn't do that. He actually went one step further. We see this God, the Creator, coming into his artwork and making himself one of the stickmen on the paper. That's what Jesus did. He became one of the pieces of art on the canvas of God. The almighty God who doesn't need us, who is self-sufficient and could have crumpled us up and tossed us away at any time, became one of us. And then he died for us. We're just scribbles on his canvas, and he dies for us. Now you can criticize my illustration and say it isn't good. Well, my friend, I warned you it wasn't going to be good. But your argument is it's not right because you and I as human beings have been given a will and the ability to choose. We're created in his image and we can think unlike any other creature in the world. But what does that make you compared to God? Nothing. You're still something made, something the maker didn't need in the first place. And then he comes and dies for us. Why? You've got to ask why. In Scripture, we see it not because he felt sorry for us, not because we pulled at his heartstrings, and not because if he didn't do something, we would die and perish. Surely he did pity us, and if he did nothing, we would have perished. No doubt these motives are involved, but it's not the main reason. The main reason he came and died for us was because it's his nature to love and be kind to his creation. That's why God is so good. It's just who he is. Jesus died so God could marvel in his own love and goodness. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read powerful words getting to the underlying motives for our redemption. Paul is grappling with this question of why would this God who created us do all of this for us? He says in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasures of his will. I ask you, what does that mean? It means because he enjoyed it. He enjoyed loving you in this way. He goes on to say in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
And then you go a little further, and it says in verse 14, Who is the guarantee, that is the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? And then you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, I've read these verses my entire life, and I've thought, okay, I get it. I get it, Lord. You saved sinners, made them your children, because one day you're going to stand at your throne. And we're going to praise you for this great grace. Well, that is true, but that's not the ultimate reason. What do you think your voice lifted in prayer and adoration to this great God is going to add to him? I'll tell you, nothing. He didn't save you for your praise. He did it for his own praise, meaning that God exalts in himself, and that is his ultimate glory. God is the only person in the entire universe that can lift himself up, and it's not pride for him to do so. It's just the opposite. It's actually good. One day, God is going to look at all the children, his children around his throne, and take pleasure in himself, that he's so loving and so kind that he would love his enemies even though they were nothing but little stick figures on a canvas he called earth. The truth that we just stated is the basis for your prayer life. It's the basis for ministry. It's the basis for service. It's the basis of life. I'm not going to add anything to God. God is just so good and kind in himself, and that's his nature. He doesn't love me for anything I do, not even my prayers. Though he delights in my prayer life, and invites me to come because he loves me and enjoys answering my prayers. The truth is, I don't add one thing to him. He just loves blessing me, period. That's who he is. That's the praise of his glory. His glory is his goodness, and God rejoices in his own goodness to we, his artwork. You see, true prayer seeks God himself. When I understand that I don't need to pray because I'm commanded to pray or because I've got to get things from God, I can pray because He loves me with no strings attached. Then, then prayer is revolutionized. It's His nature and His goodness to be this way. This is the praise of His glory. Now, friend, when you comprehend this, then you can come and just be marveled by him, and that's what should fuel your prayers. David describes it as the lifting up of the soul to God. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Psalm 25, verse 1. In the book, The Kneeling Christian, it stated, quote, real prayer at its highest and best reveals a soul a thirst for God, just for God alone, end of quote. When I pray, it's not to get God's favor or twist his arm to bless me and give me something I think I need. No, I come to a God to whom I can't add or take anything away from. 
a God who loves me just because he wants to. It's this that Jesus understood as he stood outside of Lazarus's grave. Jesus was thoroughly convinced that God his Father accepted him, cared for him, delighted in him, and loved him. He knew on this basis he always had the ear of God. He realized that he always had audience with God. The Father was always with him. Never a moment took his eyes off of his Son. But we belittle God because we treat him like we treat one another. What happens when someone doesn't return your love? What do you end up doing? Or what happens if you injure someone you love? Do they ignore you, reject you, try to punish you? Wise, if you wound your husband's honor and disrespect him, what will he do? Well, he'll probably just go off to the garage, to the woods, go fishing, maybe go back to the office and do more work. Why? It's the only way he knows how to deal with the rejection. He retreats and goes into silence. But when we injure our God, he doesn't grow silent or he doesn't try to ignore us. We still have his presence. We still have his ear. The problem is our hearts have disrupted our fellowship so that we cannot hear him. Now, I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. Of course not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm asking you to consider this. How can you sin against a God who loves you like this? A God who loves you just because that's his nature. Our prayers are often so powerless. We do not really pray because we rush without thought or preparation right into God's presence without realizing God's majesty and glory. And it's this great love that makes him gracious towards us that is the exceeding riches of his glory. The psalmist said, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. My friend, you can pray as Jesus did. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you hear me, and I know you always hear me. Why can you pray that? Why? Because he is that kind of God. He's always good, always loving. Let that be the foundation of how you pray, and your prayer life will change. You will enjoy prayer when you understand that he loves you even though you're nothing compared to him. He loves you because, well, that's who he is. Well, if you have any questions, just send them to us by email, web at realtruthmatters.com, web, realtruthmatters.com. Please include your name. We'll not use your full name on the air, but if your question's chosen, we want your name for one reason. One of you will receive a signed copy of my new book, The Fight of Faith. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in, and may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. 
Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.